0: Founding Forestry Education in Toronto, an interview with Mark Kuhlberg about his new book on the history of forestry education in Canada, and I speak with Lauren Wheeler about Niche's New Scholars Virtual Workshop in Environmental History. I'm Sean Carage and you're listening to episode 15 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the network in Canadian history and environment. On this episode of the podcast, we look at the history of forestry in Canada, Forest history has a prominent place in Canadian historiography, with landmark texts including Arthur Lower's The North American Assault on the Canadian Forest, Viv Nellis' The Politics of Development, Graham Wynne's Timber Colony, and Peter Gillis and Thomas Roach's Lost Initiatives, just to name a few. For more information and resources about Canada's forest history, listeners should visit Niche's Forest History Group website at niche-canada.org forest history While forest history has explored many of the dimensions of the interrelationships between governments, industry, workers, and forests, it's only recently that historians have explored the foundations of forestry education in Canada. In 1907, the University of Toronto opened Canada's first forestry school to undergraduate students. This was the beginning of formal forestry education in Canada, and a great step forward for the profession. However, the history of the Faculty of Forestry reveals a troubled past with struggles to balance the interests of the provincial government, private industry, and the university administration itself. This is the subject of Mark Kuhlberg's recently published book 100 Rings and Counting, Forestry Education and Forestry in Toronto and Canada, 1907-2007, to 2007, in which he chronicles the first century of this foundational institution and fills a significant gap in the literature on the history of the development of professional forestry in Canada. Mark joined us on the podcast to tell us more about this history.
1: Sure, my name is Mark Kohlberg and i'm an Associate Professor in the History Department at Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario.
0: Thanks for joining us today on the podcast Mark. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, how did the University of Toronto come to have ontario's first forestry school in nineteen o seven
1: i would I would just clarify too that it was the the country's first forestry school, so it was actually canada's first forestry stu- uh, school when it was established in nineteen o seven and this, did, uh, I should stress as well that the development wasn't a reflection of the university's dedication to or, or belief in forestry. Rather, it seems the evidence suggests that it was more about the ego of the, the university's president at the time, whose name was James Loudon. And uh, it, it made sense for Queen's University in Kingston to be the institution that would host the forestry school. Mm-hmm. Um, beginning in the 1890s, it had begun a dialogue with major... F- the major forester in the United States about uh, how to start a forestry school, and in fact, in the early 1900s, the Ontario government passed legislation that authorized Queen's to establish the forestry school. But then around 1902, James Loudon intervened, and he was uh, intensely jealous that his rival, the university in Kingston, was going to acquire this school. So Loudon... He deftly pulled some political strings and leveraged his influence with the provincial government to derail Queen's plans. But after having done so, it wasn't as if he pounced on this opportunity to establish the Forestry School in Toronto. It, it took some time, and it was only after a royal commission into the University of Toronto's affairs in 1905 recommended that the Forestry School be established at what was known as the province's university, namely U of T, that, uh, that it came into being. And so it opened its doors in the fall of 1907.
0: So the impression I get from the the opening chapters of your book is that uh, the University of Toronto and the Province of Ontario had a, a hesitant commitment to establishing this school.
1: Yeah, it was almost uh, we will if you force us to, or or you know if we have to, okay, we'll do it. But then once it once the university established the the forestry school, both the attitude of both the pro, the province, the provincial government, and the university, they they certainly. I would say it was rare that they embraced the forestry school and really said this is something that's going to be uh, we're going to we're going to invest a lot of uh, a lot of resources into it, it. It never seemed to fully be embraced. It still hasn't been, I don't think. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it it, uh, it almost seems to have been forced upon the university at the time, and, and the province for that matter. I should stress as well, the government wasn't really keen to see a forestry school because that would start to uh, have an impact on how it managed its woodlands and I don't think it was keen to see that happen.
0: Well, that raises another question I wanted to ask you. what In its early years, what kind of impact did the Faculty of Forestry at U of T have on the forestry profession and forestry education in Canada?
1: Well, the short answer is, I think, not much. Um, you could count on your hands, or both hands, I guess, the number of foresters in Canada in the early 20th century. And There was definitely growing public interest in forest conservation, but I would argue that there was little support for practicing the message that professional foresters were preaching. And just to consider the context, just to back up a bit, um, you know, society valued doctors at that time because they had proven the efficacy of their work, and the same with other professions, such as engineers or dentists. Mm -hmm. But for foresters in the early 1900s, there was no proof that their work was worthwhile. Or even necessary, in a country in which it was widely believed that the forests were so large that they were virtually inexhaustible. Um, Mm -hmm. So for the most part, foresters during the faculty's early years, they spent most of their time waging a public relations campaign to convince Canadians that their work, you know, the work of foresters was indeed desirable and and needed. Um, And maybe the best example of the challenges that they faced would be the Ontario government's attitude towards professional foresters for the first Uh, roughly 12 years of its existence uh, during the forestry school's first 12 years. Um, The forestry school had been established to provide the government with the expertise to manage its tens of thousands of square miles of of crown forests in Mm -hmm. the best long-term interests of Ontarians. And, you know, during the first few decades of the 20th century, the Ontario government boasted that it was actually doing a good job of managing these resources. But in reality, Ontario, or at least the politician, sought to use the woodlands it, they controlled for political reasons rewarding friends and punishing enemies and and the government um hired only one of the faculty's graduates prior to 1919 and that was a period during which nearly 60 students graduated from the program and i think that's a telling you know telling sign of of the the government's interest in forestry only after world war one does the university of toronto begin to exercise or the faculty of forestry sorry begin to exercise major influence over developments in this field. During the interwar years, or that that 1920s decade at least, many pulp and paper uh, firms hired its graduates in large numbers, and some of them were actually able to implement bona fide silvicultural uh, programs. Mm-hmm. In, in Ontario, for example, Spanish River uh, was... uh, Canada is actually its largest newsprint producer. After the First World War, it began managing its timberlands on a sustained yield basis and supplementing the natural regeneration it was getting in its cutovers with with a substantial tree planting program. And if you look at the persons who were carrying out the work in the field, they were University of Toronto graduates by and large. So, uh, all you know, it took some time for the forestry students to actually, or the faculty, to start having an impact.
0: And this is an interesting problem that you point out early on in the book, and I think it's something that's common in Canadian environmental history, that um, crown ownership of natural resources uh, didn't necessarily lead to a more uh, activist conservation program on the part of the provincial government, in this case in Ontario.
1: Yeah, and that's something that foreigners couldn't get their heads around. Uh, It seemed to be the ideal polity in which to... To manage forests prudently over the long term, right? The government would own this for in perpetuity, and and let's, you know, not worry about uh, tomorrow. Let's worry about twenty tomorrows into the future. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially Europeans couldn't understand what was going on, and and, uh, you know, it was a problem that that proved to be uh, difficult to to uh, to eradicate or difficult to address in in a in an effective way. It was uh, even to my mind. I mean, you know, it's it's. It didn't make a lot of sense.
0: It um, so could have been better in these in these early decades for the forestry school. Did you feel that graduates were having a greater impact on the private sector than they were on public policy?
1: It seemed to uh, it seemed to be that way. That's for sure. Um, and I shouldn't say you know that there was no impact right from these foresters. Right, they they right. were hired in large numbers by the Dominion Forest Service, and so they were doing important work in other parts of the country. But when you consider the the raison d'être for the forestry school in the first place, it's ironic that the, the government basically turned uh, turned a deaf ear and a blind eye to it, right? And didn't really want to want to know about some of the uh, the ideas that were emanating from mm-hmm. it.
0: Now that reminds me, in the in the early years, some of the graduates were having uh, quite a substantial international impact, and I, I recall reading, in particular, one graduate ended up working in New Zealand and Australia.
1: That's right. Uh, he's he's. Uh, an interesting fellow who who literally shaped or uh, changed the face of forestry in uh, in New Zealand. Uh, did you want me? To, I can address him now. if you yeah, wish. sure. Uh, his name was Leon Ellis. He graduated in 1911, and during his during World War One, as most of the faculty graduates did, he served with the Canadian Forestry Corps in France or overseas. And he uh, during that time he met a, Ellis met a senior forestry official from Scotland and enticed. Ellis into taking up a position in the British Isles, but by 1920, Ellis had departed for another posting within the British Empire. He'd become the first uh, director of forestry in New Zealand, Mm -hmm. and uh, he drew up New Zealand's first forest legislation and created a forest service to administer it. And he also undertook a study of the silvics of the country's native species to figure out, okay, what is the potential for timber production here or sustainable forestry? And his conclusion was that New Zealand would be uh, best able to meet its long-term timber demands through the government undertaking a massive reforestation program using exotic or foreign species. And specifically, mm. he turned uh, to Pinus radiata, a species that's native to a small part of California. And the upshot saw New Zealand transformed into, uh, from being an importer to being a major exporter of pulp and paper products. And it was a country that, uh, after Ellis's work, it supported extensive plantations. And the neat part is, from my mind, Ellis wasn't finished there. He had a bit of a falling out in New Zealand. He left in the late 1920s for Australia. And there he began to push for Australia to take advantage of one of its native species, namely eucalyptus. And this was a fundamental uh, part of that country, ending its dependence on imported fiber Mm -hmm. and led to the uh, production of pulp from indigenous hardwoods. So, you know, here you have somebody in 1911 graduating from Toronto, and he ends up having a major impact on forestry and and forests halfway
0: around the world. It's an amazing story, um, but the the fate of the department changes by the 1930s. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of the depression on forestry education in, in Toronto?
1: Sure. Um, the title of the chapter for the 30s is is uh, Forestry's Darkest Hour, and, and that's how an iconic forester in Canada, Elwood Wilson, described the events that were occurring at the time. Um, the depression and more specifically government policy during the 1930s dealt Canada's pulp and paper industry a devastating blow. So this had been a sector of the the forest industry that had been, been hiring foresters and then in the 1930s uh, calamity struck. So the forces that were at play during the 1930s left most newsprint firms in receivers hands and the receivers proved to be inordinately averse (laughs) to managing the firms in the best interests of the companies Mm -hmm. and the impact was predictable. uh, Foresters were fired on mass and when the economic downturn hit, governments across the country tightened their belts, paired expenditures and I would argue predictably they cut most or deepest where the cuts would have the least political impact Mm -hmm. and uh, for the Dominion Forest Service, for example, in Ottawa, it meant the uh, wholesale firing of foresters, and oftentimes this was done in the most brutal manner. Uh, they were they were even informed of the decision in a heartless manner that uh, left most of them uh, disillusioned with the, the choices they had made in terms of their professions. Mm-hmm. Now, Ontario took a bit of a different tack. They didn't. Once the depression hit in the early 1930s, they didn't. Ontario didn't go out and fire all of the foresters. It was uh, it was only in 1934 when Mitchell F. Hepburn. Wins power that, or he won power that uh, that the darkest hour began. I guess for Ontario's <laughs> foresters. And under the guise of a cost-cutting measure, Hepburn's Liberal government dismissed the foresters who were known to be conservatives, mm-hmm. and uh, allowed most of the grit loyalists to re- retain their posts. And all of this bloodletting inflicted serious damage on the faculty in Toronto. And you know, clearly, with such bleak job prospects, enrollment dwindled. And I believe by the late 1930s student body number just over 30. So it was uh, those were pretty grim days.
0: And this all happened during the term of uh, Dean Howe, is that correct? That's right. So by the end of the Second World War, then, the Faculty of Forestry starts to see some uh, bigger transformations in terms of public environmental attitudes toward uh, the province's woodlands. What, what sort of impact did this have on, on the faculty's uh, programs?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. In terms of the, the dynamics, as you know from your work in this field, there were many new forces after the war that began to influence events in the woods. I mean growing affluence and leisure time, the car culture, et cetera, all of those things in North America led to an increased demand for natural areas in which urbanites could enjoy recreational pursuits. And similarly there arose a belief in the need to or strong belief in the need to preserve and not simply conserve nature and this was most often expressed in the woods by those who began arguing mm-hmm. that certain woodlands were more valuable for their aesthetic and ecological qualities and their timber values. And naturally, this would create conflict between foresters and those who believed in these other causes. Mm-hmm. And I should stress also that there was a bit of an irony that marked this turn of events, because for years, or for decades really, I guess, the, uh, the forest had been these ecological profits, I would suggest, wandering in the wilderness, preaching this message of sustainable development. But the citizenry was largely deaf to the message. And if you look back in the faculty's history, its graduates were the ones who, you know, in the 20s and 30s were arguing that wastelands in southern Ontario should be reforested in an effort to conserve watersheds and restore animal habitat. And, and, uh, you know, the same dynamic was at work with the foresters' relationship with the Ontario government. They literally begged the politicians to in, in, invest in prudent forest management. Um, so in many respects, like I said, these foresters were the first voices crying out for what would become known as the environmental movement long before that, that, that uh, phrase had really been coined. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem with the faculty's response to the changes after the war was that its attempt to respond to them it really didn't occur quickly enough or uh, dramatically enough. Uh, dramatically you know sorry, it introduced a more holistic approach to forestry by offering courses in fields such as wildlife recreation uh, urban forestry. It became a world leader really in urban forestry and ecology, but still it seemed that the uh, the shift wasn't keeping up with the rapidly changing world and and maybe a little bit of too little too late and mm-hmm. uh I mean there were many who called for more rapid changes, more fundamental changes, but it's uh it's not easy to to uh, to affect those types of changes in academia I think and and uh, I think the faculty became or
0: became a victim of, of those forces and what was happening at other forestry schools in Canada at the time
1: uh, did you ha- I think the changes going on elsewhere in general were more uh, more in tune with with the uh, the changes that were going on in society uh, I believe at UNB they were, far more adept at at uh, embracing a more holistic approach to to woodlands and forests and and the ecological side of that and wildlife management and uh and in the states you'd see new or forestry schools being reborn even before the post-war period as uh, schools of forestry and environmental studies or science or or you know some element of the environment would be in their 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 name and it wouldn't mm-hmm. strictly be a fo- faculty of forestry which which came with a lot of baggage, frankly, by the 1960s and 70s. Mm
0: -hmm. And staying with the Ontario context, then, um, where do you see Algonquin Park fitting into this emerging conflict between environmentalists and foresters?
1: Well, Algonquin Park was the fabled, uh, you know, it's the famous battleground for where these battles, where these uh, conflicts occurred, and... um, you know, it, it, it was the jewel in the provincial, it is the jewel in the provincial park system. Mm-hmm. And um, the environmental movement was able to, I think, capture the public's attention in that uh, in that area and use it to promote their message. And I think they did so really, you know, very effectively. And it, it led to, ultimately, it led to some, some very good changes, I think, in terms of forest stewardship going on in Algonquin Park with the creation of the Algonquin Forestry Authority in the 1970s and the dean of the Faculty of Forestry was actually appointed as its first chairman, I believe. So, um, you know, the faculty wasn't, wasn't saying we reject all of these new forces. We're keen to work with them. But again, maybe it didn't respond uh, quickly enough.
0: Now, the faculty over the course of the 1970s and 1980s and into the 1990s was under increasing pressure to move uh, off of the St. George campus. <clears throat> um, can you talk a little bit about the attempt to move the faculty to the Scarborough campus? of the university of toronto
1: sure Uh, scarborough is an eastern suburb of toronto and the university of toronto has two satellite what used to be called i think satellite campuses uh, one in scarborough in the east end one in mississauga in the west end and uh there was a move afoot Mm -hmm. in the 1970s as the university was under uh, fiscal or financial pressure or pressure to uh to rein in finances and reallocate resources and use them more efficiently that the suggestion was made that maybe it would be best to move the faculty from the downtown campus out to Scarborough College. And in many respects, it made good sense. Um, the faculty or the college, Scarborough College, the Scarborough campus of U of T is located in a beautiful woodlands out in a largely undeveloped area, not in downtown Toronto. Uh, it, was, it was a very small um, underpopulated campus at the time, so having if the faculty had moved there, it may have opened up an opportunity for the faculty to become really the marquee uh, part or element of that of that small ca- uh, satellite campus. Mm-hmm. And the university administration was very keen, I think, to see facu- the faculty of forestry, if not evicted, at least strongly encouraged to leave the downtown campus. And the faculty was not interested in doing so. It uh, it dismissed in a rather cursory manner the suggestion that it move and uh, and, and I think uh, it it would come back to bite it uh, in in the proverbial
0: batouse uh, down the road. So, uh, so I, I think it would... I guess we could say that bite then it, uh, comes by the early 1990s with the elimination of the Faculty of Forestry's undergraduate program. That's
1: um, right.
0: So what, what were some of the major factors that led to the elimination of that program?
1: Well, by the you know even by the 1970s uh, you have a new forestry school at Thunder Bay up at uh, Lakehead University, so there's mm-hmm. competition now for the undergraduates. By the late 18 or late late 1980s, early 1990s, enrollment is declining. Uh, incoming classes at at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Forestry are under 20. Um, again, another period of uh, fiscal constraint, how are we going to use these resources wisely or, or best on the campus at U of T, on downtown campus. Um, the university is under the presidency of Robert Pritchard, who was determined to make the tough decisions. And um, the provost at the time was Joan Foley, who was the pres- had been the president of Scarborough College in the 1970s when the faculty of forestry had said, we don't want to move to Scarborough. Um and it, the manner in which it had delivered the message, I'm sure, left a bad taste in everybody's mouth out at Scarborough College. Mm-hmm. And in the early 1990s, the university basically presented uh, wow. a few options to the faculty in terms of its future. And. Uh, Joan Foley seemed to have a single-mindedness to make sure that the undergraduate program for the Faculty of Forestry was indeed chopped as a cost under the guise of making a you know, cost-saving measure. Mm-hmm. And uh, and ultimately, that's what happened. Despite uh, major protests and a bit of political uproar on campus, uh, the Faculty's undergraduate program was terminated in 1993.
0: So it seemed to me that over the course of this 100-year year history of this forestry program, there was a recurring theme about the relationship between the Faculty of Forestry and uh, private industry, as well as the relationship between the Faculty of Forestry and the provincial government. Um, from your perspective, then, how well do you think, over the course of its history, the faculty balanced that, that, uh, that relationship?
1: Okay, that's um, the, the private industry one. I would say in it balanced it probably as well as a faculty could have under the circumstances. And, and in this regard, I, I just would underscore one point, and I just think it's essential to distance the word industry from any sure. no- negative connotations that might be implied by it. Because mm-hmm. um, I stress in the book, look, industry manages woodlands by and large according to the rules set by the provincial government and mm-hmm. the province. The politicians in the main manage their affairs with an eye to retaining popular support to ensure they continued in power, they, their party won the next election. So, in other words, if the people of Ontario wanted good forest stewardship, the provincial government would have implemented measures to achieve that aim much sooner than it actually did. So, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily see having had a lot of industry support as being bad. I just wanted to preface uh, my answer with that comment. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I would add another point too. Uh, the dean. You know, in an interesting part of the faculty's history, from 1941 to 47, its dean was a man named Gordon Cousins. And he held the academic post of dean while he was on a retainer from one of Ontario's dominant pulp and paper firms, namely Kimberly Clark. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the university's administrators saw this tie to industry as the reason why Cousins was the best person to take over the faculty at the time. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be a great decision for the forestry school because uh, Cousins was able to win all sorts of uh, benefits for the faculty during his short tenure. He was only there six to- uh, 6 years, but he, he was able to really af- affect major positive changes in the faculty. And, um, and again, uh, it wasn't a case of selling out to industry. It was simply um, enjoying the support and the, some of the fruits that came with that support from industry. Um, and Kimberly-Clark was a firm that was far ahead of the cur- curve in terms of forest management. After World War II, it began of its own initiative and with its own money, a civic cultural program that involved reforesting its cutovers long before this was two decades before the government actually mandated that this ought to occur. And so, you know, I, I, I see the faculty as having done a relatively good job of balancing its, its uh, relationship with private industry. And, and when there was an occasion to capitalize on industry's mm-hmm. support, I think, it, I think it did a good job of, of, uh, of doing so. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the govern, terms of dealing with the government, <laughs> I would say its relations with the government were, its record in that regard was far more far spottier. It was far uh, far poorer. Its first dean, for example, the August Bernardi Furnau, who uh, mm-hmm. whose term ran from 1907 to 1919, he couldn't help but raise the hackles of the province's politicians, and in fact, he openly admitted that this was. Ultimately, one of his goals, he thought this was one of the ways you could uh, badger the politicians into investing in forest management and taking the forestry message more seriously, but just keep speaking out and criticizing them. And he didn't realize he was biting his nose to spite his face because the the politicians would write to the dean or the president of the university and say, or, I'm sorry, the president of the university, and they would say, you know, silence this guy. We don't want to hear about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So his successor, and just to continue that thread for a minute. his successor, C.D. Howe, whose term ran from 1919 to 1941, he takes a diametric approach. He says, okay, Furnow kept speaking out, and during his 12 years in power, the government only hired one of our foresters. Clearly, this was not effective. (laughs) So, the new rule, it was an unwritten rule, it was no speaking out. You never criticize publicly the government's policy or lack thereof. Even if it's the most anemic thing you've ever seen, you do not speak out. And Mm the 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 uh the depth of his commitment to that uh, that mantra was he demonstrated in the early 1930s when he ultimately you know he pulled the trigger on firing one of his colleagues who had who couldn't take it anymore and who had spoken out and who'd broken ranks mm-hmm. and uh he fired a gentleman named WN Millar who was uh, his colleague of what, practically 15, 16, 17 years, and he fired him in a rather ruthless manner at the depths of the Depression, and Miller left his post at U of T and uh, died shortly thereafter of a heart attack in the States where he was able to pick up work. He was an American. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, you know, it was clear that the faculty wasn't doing a very good job, I don't think, anyways, uh, Howe's approach was no better than Fernow's. It basically had, I think, the same end. Foresters were hired by the province, but they they weren't actually practicing forestry. They were just spotting forest fires and helping to put them out or um, they weren't really uh, managing woodlands. So, you know, during the pre-war period, uh, pre-World War II period, it wasn't a very harmonious relationship. And and frankly, thereafter, there were also uh, some major bumps in the road as well.
0: Yeah, it seemed like over the course of the history of the Faculty of Forestry, there was an element of political relations to manage um, in terms of the relationship between... The faculty and the provincial government, although that seems to, to wane over the course of the, the narrative that you tell, especially in the, the post-war period, that the interconnections between the province and the faculty become less direct over time.
1: Yeah, it seems, I mean, it just seems to be a function of a burgeoning population and you know, society's mm-hmm. growth, but there were far fewer of those really, you know, those personal contacts. I mean, some of the deans were very well connected yeah. to the politicians, but the the, the, uh, the lines weren't as tight, I don't think. Yeah. Um uh so, and also with the you know the advent of a second forestry school, the faculty in Toronto wasn't the only voice for forestry in the province, so uh,
0: that's that uh, that had an impact as well so I wanted to ask you, as a historian uh what were some of the major challenges of writing uh, the history of this institution
1: oh that's a great um well, you know, I must stress um Now that you've, you know, this question, because it, one factor made writing this history a privilege, and truly a privilege, was the editorial freedom I was given. Um, The faculty's book committee reviewed my chapters as I wrote them in the book upon its completion, and never Mm -hmm. once did its members ask that I alter the arguments I presented. Mm -hmm. And to me, I felt so privileged to be able to write with that type of uh, freedom Mm -hmm. and, uh, I was also given complete access to sources, and much many of those sources had never been used before, so that was one of the positives but in terms of challenges, um you know the evidence i think a good historian allows the evidence to speak instead of trying to be you know, cherry pick evidence to make the case that i had had come to the evidence with and and so in <clears throat> the evidence I came across forced me to rethink some of the views I had previously held on some of the persons and events about which I wrote in the book um, and I'd also say it's it's challenge to write history. I've written a lot about the 20s and the 30s and maybe up into the 50s. But when yeah. you get into the 90s and or 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, you're writing about living persons, and some mm-hmm. of whom you know, and some of whom you deal with in a professional setting. And as a result, it it uh, I think there's some. I don't think you back down from expressing your views based upon the evidence you've you've. You know, you, at which you've looked, but I think it's it, there's more, maybe more pressure. But you think twice about how you express your views, and also to be diplomatic in doing so. Um, and that was that was a challenge too, because ultimately, I think I wrote what I thought was a, as ac, an accurate, uh, as accurate in history as possible of the faculty, and it it, it means that some people get painted in, in brighter colors than others.
0: Well, I think uh, readers will get a lot out of this book, Uh, uh, researchers and students and instructors in environmental history and especially in forest history uh, should definitely pick up a copy and take a look. This is obviously a foundational institution in forest history, uh, Canadian forest history, and uh, this book fills in a, a pretty substantial gap, I think, in the literature. Um, So I definitely encourage readers to pick up a copy of 100 Rings and Counting, Forestry Education and Forestry in Toronto and Canada, 1907 to 2007. Uh, Mark, I want to thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. It's been a, a pleasure. Traveling to history conferences and workshops can be expensive and complicated. If you're lucky enough to find travel and accommodations funding, the management of receipts and reimbursement policies can make you feel more like a travel agent and less like a historian. This is an especially significant challenge for cash-strapped graduate students. The Niche New Scholars group is leading an effort to change this by experimenting with online technologies to facilitate a workshop in environmental history. Through projects like this, environmental history can, as Adam Krimble wrote on his blog earlier this week, work toward moving information, not people. Place and Placelessness is a virtual environmental history workshop for graduate students in Canada and around the world whose research addresses, complicates, or illustrates the local, regional, and transnational ecologies that bind us together. Using a combination of VoIP conferencing, blogging, and photo sharing, this ambitious workshop will bring together graduate students studying aspects of environmental history from around the world. Workshop co-organizer Lauren Wheeler took a moment to tell us a little bit more about place and placenessness.
2: So I'm Lauren Wheeler. I'm a PhD student at the University of Alberta.
0: Thanks for joining us today, Lauren. I wanted to ask you a little bit about this workshop that you're helping to organize called Place and Placelessness. Can you tell us a little bit more about this workshop event?
2: Sure. Uh, Will Knight and I at Carleton University have been participating in the Niche New Scholars virtual reading group since it began back in August of 2009 and thought that it was an excellent format for exchanging ideas and and bringing grad students together without having to travel anywhere or um, take too, too much time out of the day. So we thought that in that model, we could host a workshop using the same technologies, mostly Skype and Google groups for sharing papers and bring together people from around the world.
0: So this isn't a typical workshop event. We're not going to be seeing uh, panels with three papers and then a question and answer session followed by it. You're, you guys have decided to go with a, an online or virtual workshop model.
2: Mm -hmm. And the way that we found this virtual workshop model to work best is to use just one paper per panel. So each of the sessions, which will occur in October, will be centered around one paper. All the participants will be circulated that paper in advance, have a chance to read it, make comments on it. And then when the Skype phone call is scheduled, they'll be the opportunity for the writer of the paper to talk a bit about what they want to do with it, where they're going, and then a discussion from the people who've read it around where they think this paper could go, um, ideas they had, and really a a work-in-progress kind of developing ideas, mentality around it.
0: So this borrows a lot from that unconference idea of the presenter saying very little and actually the readers or the reviewers saying the bulk, or starting the bulk of the conversation.
2: Yes, definitely. Um more of a conversation than being uh, presented towards.
0: So you've adopted an an online model. What are some of the advantages to this kind of a workshop?
2: The biggest advantage that, that we think this kind of workshop has is the ability to bring people together at a very, very low cost. All it takes to participate in the workshop is a reliable internet connection, a Skype account, and your computer. Um, download the papers for the panels that you would like to participate in, read them, submit the comments, turn on Skype when it's time for the panel, and the discussion is right there. And you can be talking to people from across Canada, across North America, and around the world.
0: So no need to get a plane ticket, no need to apply for travel funding, no need to apply for accommodation funding?
2: None at all. You do it all in the comfort of your own home, uh, or your office, whichever has a better internet connection, uh, and definitely save some money on this. We're all grad students, and we know how hard it is to to travel around and and get get the funding to go to all these conferences. So this is one of our solutions. The other bonus being, as environmental historians, we're we're often very guilty about the amount of carbon we emit going to all of these conferences and so much. So this is the almost zero carbon footprint version of a workshop
0: and you've included a a field trip as well how is it you're going to do a field trip with a, a virtual or online workshop
2: Well, the field trip is going to be a little bit of an experiment. Again, we're going to use a lot of the the online web-based resources that we have. The idea in in this virtual work field trip, pardon me, is to to get people to take a look around their communities um, and then exchange what they see around them. We have a few ideas of of how we're going to ask people to to focus on what's in their communities, um, using things like Google Map to track where people are finding what we decide, the workshop will be focused mm-hmm. um, exchanging images through Flickr, possibly even using something like Twitter to to talk about in real time what we see in our communities. The idea really is, as academics, we're largely um, centered in, in urban areas and and looking for nature and looking for the the global commodities change, chains. Pardon me, that link us. in in very different places together and then back to the environment outside of the city.
0: So you're looking for graduate students to participate both as readers as well as uh, people submitting works in progress?
2: Yes. uh, We have two distinctions that we're looking for, the first being presenters. And these are the people who will submit unfinished papers or drafts of articles and thesis chapters. Uh, This is what would be circulated to the other Uh, participant that we're looking for, and those are the discussants. And the discussants are the people who will be reading the papers, submitting their comments, and then really driving the conversation uh, around each of these ideas.
0: And while this is an environmental history group that's organizing this, uh, you're looking for people from all uh, uh, disciplinary backgrounds, then, relating to the environment.
2: Yes. uh, Environmental history is a very interdisciplinary Field, So anything relating to history and the environment, whether you're in a history department, education, uh, geography, geology, anywhere that's touching on these topics, these ideas are, are welcome to submit.
0: And what do you hope graduate students will take out of this experience when you guys finally put together this workshop in October?
2: We're hoping that the graduate students who are able to come and participate will be able to connect with other graduate students looking at or interested in the same things um, in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, to exchange ideas and really show the ability of the technology we have at our disposal to make this happen without the traditional having to travel across continents and oceans to do so.
0: And that's really interesting, uh, this hopefully, this ability to connect people from all around the world. I mean, Canada in and of itself is such a large place that environmental history graduate students are spread so far across this country alone. Um, You're looking at an opportunity here to bring people from the United States, Europe, and even Japan uh, into into conversation with each other.
2: Yes, we've had great success with this in the Niche New Scholars reading group. Regularly, our conversations there include um, people from Japan, From England, from everywhere from Vancouver, out into Ottawa, Montreal, here in Edmonton, you name it. We've had people (laughs) talking from there. So it's been a really, uh, really great experience um, getting to talk to people a bit more and doing it all without having to leave your home base.
0: Well, I hope there are some listeners out there who uh, will find this uh, interesting and will um, submit either a work in progress to this workshop or apply to be a discussant or a reviewer at this workshop. Can you let uh, listeners know a little bit of more information about where they can find out how to register for Place and Placenessness?
2: Of course. Um, one of the first places you can go to look for information is the Niche website, as Niche is sponsoring the, um, the workshop So the web address there is?
0: uh, Uh, I think we're looking at uh, niche-canada.org.
2: Thanks. (laughs) The other place you can go is a web page slash blog, which Will and I have have set up to disseminate information about the conference. It is wordpress. Dot com. And from that, you will see the place and place listeners call for participants, uh, areas for the workshop program once we have participants submitting, uh, place for registration, which when you click on that part of the page, will direct you st- through a really straightforward online registration process in which you can say whether you'd like to be a pr- presenter or just a discussant. Um, there's also some information there about our virtual field trip, Some contact information, Uh, there is a feed of everything we've been tweeting on Twitter, so you can always go to Twitter and find us there, as well as just general information.
0: Well, great. Um, I hope that uh, graduate student listeners do at least check out the virtual EH website uh, to find out a little bit more about this workshop and hopefully register uh, to participate in what will no doubt be a really interesting uh, experiment for environmental history graduate studies. Lauren, I want to thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Mark Kuhlberg, Lauren Wheeler, and me, Sean Carage. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast, and don't forget to rate this podcast and write a short review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash past. If you have ideas for new episodes or you want to send me some feedback, you can contact me through my website, seancarage.wordpress.com. You can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community from Niche's website at niche-canada.org. This is our final episode before the summer break. Over the next couple of months, we'll be working out ideas for new episodes, so please get in touch with us now if you have a concept for an episode that you'd like to hear. We'll be back in the fall, so stay subscribed, and thanks for listening.